0: Did you think you were God, Brandon? You don't love me. I'm just something you caught. You think I'm some kind of animal you've trapped. That's right, you are. Did you ever try to keep warm on a C-54 at 15,000 feet, 20 degrees below zero? Oh, I do it all the time. It's not good to find out too much, Charlie. But we're sort of like twins, don't you see? We have to know. Oh, we have 12 vacancies, 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Not that I mind a slight case of abduction now and then, but I have tickets for the theatre this evening. And I get, well, kind of unreasonable about things like that. It's a cinch. I look up, I look down. I look up, I look down. I've got a theory that you should do everything before you die. (laughs) Welcome to Talking Hitchcock. A podcast that celebrates and explores the work of one of the greatest directors cinema has ever known. I'm your host Rebecca, and thank you for letting me be your guide as we take an adventure together through a world of suspense, intrigue and illusion. Whether you're a lifelong fan, an occasional dabbler, or a complete newcomer, everyone's welcome here. So... If you care to join me, I invite you to take my hand as we fall together into the beautiful and beguiling world of Alfred Hitchcock. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Talking Hitchcock. Today, it's just me in the screening room, and I thought I'd begin with what I'm calling a Hitchcock Starter Kit. Consider it an accompanying short to warm you up before the main feature begins. In this episode, I'll give a broad outline of Hitchcock's life and career, pausing to reflect a little more closely on a selection of works across his filmography, before moving on to discuss the questions of who or what is Hitchcock. Finally, I will conclude by sharing some thoughts and reflections on my own personal journey with his work, from my early experiences through to the present day. Before we begin our journey through Hitchcock's fictional world then, allow me to tell you a little more about his life and career. Alfred Joseph Hitchcock was born on the 13th of August, 1899 in Essex, London, above a greengrocer's to parents Emma and William Hitchcock. When Hitchcock arrived in the world, he had two siblings waiting to meet him, William, nine, and Nellie, age seven, and he was raised in a strong Catholic household. One of Hitchcock's earliest memories, and most frequently recounted anecdotes, involved his father sending him with a note to the local constabulary, aged four or five, after he had done something of reprimand, as he put it. Upon presenting the note to a policeman, the young Hitchcock was put in a prison cell for five torturous minutes, and issued with a warning that, This is what we do to naughty little boys. An experience that he credited as being responsible for his lifelong fear of authority figures and which would leave a watermark across his films through themes of confinement, bars, watchful eyes and the wrong man. By the time Hitchcock was eight, the family had moved from Essex to London's East End, where Father William had invested in two fishmonger shops. In his younger years, Hitchcock moved between several schools and colleges, including convent school Hara House and a short stay at a boarding school in Battersea, age nine. This was such a terrible experience that his parents promptly removed him after just one week. He then attended St Ignatius College, where he learned under a regime of discipline and corporal punishment. He also credited these years as teaching him organisation, control, and to some degree, analysis. Growing up, Hitchcock was obsessed with maps and timetables, demonstrating his fondness for structure and detail. He cited major literary influences as J.M. Barry, John Buchan, and Edgar Allan Poe, a trio who provide a mixture of ghostliness, suspense, and the macabre all of which would become key elements of Hitchcock's work. Just ahead of his 14th birthday, he left all-time education and, set on becoming an engineer, enrolled into the engineering school for the next 12 months. It was at this premature time in Hitchcock's life that his father William sadly passed away due to kidney failure. Through 1914 to 1918, A young Hitchcock lived in a London besieged by air raids amidst the chaos and devastation of World War I. He spoke rarely of the impact of this experience, and when he did, he gave no impression that this had had any great effect upon him. But he must have felt the unpredictability and cruelness of the world around him, and shades of this are certainly present in many of his films. Hitchcock's first experience of the world of work began in the advertisement department of a telegraph company named Henley's, which he balanced alongside art classes that he took at the University of London. Whilst at Henley's, age 20, he founded the Henley Telegraph, a magazine in which he published a number of short stories that are very much reflective of his unique brand, with titles including gas, sordid, and most amusingly of all, The History of Pea Eating. In 1921, Hitchcock began his work in print and design advertisements for Famous Players Lasky, which would later become Paramount Pictures, a British based production company in Islington. Here, he was hired on a casual basis, whilst also impressively keeping up his regular job at Henley's. His role was to produce ideas for the illustrations of film title cards. It was during this period that he also received a great deal of invaluable on-the-job training. Now working in the editorial department in the studio, he also started studying script writing more closely, liaising with writers and shooting small additional scenes. He describes this as learning the beginnings and the ends of a film. These formative years are the starting point, the foundation for a man whose passion lay in storytelling and conveying his imagination through the visual medium. As he commented himself, his was a mind that thought in pictures. Ideas, concepts, and designs—no doubt—bears forth in great number from the man who would, in decades to come, be responsible for some of cinema's greatest masterpieces. In 1922, the studio closed and was taken over by an American company that would later become Gainsborough Pictures. This change turned out, in fact, to be a boon for Hitchcock, who found himself employed in the role of assistant director, art director and writer on a film entitled Woman to Woman, and all at the mere age of 23. Not only would this be a notable professional experience for Hitchcock, but it became hugely significant for him personally too, as he would meet Alma Revel, his future wife and collaborator, who acted as an editor on the film. From here, Hitchcock made his directorial debut in The Pleasure Garden in 1925, with Alma in the role of assistant director-editor. In 1926, the pair married and within two years, Alma would give birth to their daughter, Patricia, who later made several memorable appearances in her father's work, including Strangers on a Train and Psycho. By 1927, Hitchcock had made a film that would contain many of the key notes and hallmarks of what we now come to define as Hitchcockian, blending the surreal and the naturalistic with suspense, tension the macabre and the darkly comedic. The Lodger is based on a 1913 novel by Marie Bella Clowns. The book was inspired by the Whitechapel murders, believed to have been committed by Jack the Ripper, and which had occurred just 30 years before. This early work represents Hitchcockian cinema in both subject matter and in execution. Of the film, Hitchcock reflected. I took pure narrative and presented ideas in purely visual form. It is also worth noting that the director makes the first of his well-known and often playful cameo appearances that will reoccur in many of his films for years to come. Writing for Criterion, Philip Kemp remarks upon how many of the recurrent Hitchcock themes are present in the film citing the director's obsession with blondes, for only those with golden curls are in danger in the film, the public's callous reaction to violent crime, and what he calls the over-possessive and morally ambiguous policeman boyfriend, who we will see again in the forthcoming shadow of a doubt and notorious. A silent film. The Lodger is a smorgasbord of techniques and visual treats, such as shadows, lighting and, of course, the now-legendary glass ceiling effect. The influence upon Hitchcock of the German expressionists F. W. Murnau and Fritz Lang, especially after having recently spent time in Berlin, is clearly on show here. In an interview with Charles Champlin in 1971, the director remarked, I would say that the lodger looks very German, I was tremendously influenced more than anything else by the German cinema. Audiences must certainly have been reeling with excitement and horror at both the gorgeousness and the ghostliness of this film. In his famous in person interviews with Francois Truffaut, Hitchcock told his French counterpart The whole approach of it was instinctive with me. It was the first time I exercised style. He's also known to have remarked upon how he considered it to be the first true Hitchcock movie. The Lodger received great acclaim and at just 27 years of age, Hitchcock's future career in film was looking very promising indeed. Hitchcock continues with what is known as his British period throughout the 20s and 30s, with notable entries beginning with Blackmail, his first film with sound, and the first British talkie. Just four years later, he signs a lucrative contract with Garmont British, where he makes a series of successful films, including his first attempt at The Man Who Knew Too Much, The 39 Steps, and The Lady Vanishes, which performs so well it happens to catch the attention of Hollywood. Interestingly, the end of this era and the beginning of a new one in America is bookended with two adaptations by writer Daphne du Maurier, whose work he would later revisit in 1963. 1939's Jamaica Inn has its merits, but with Hitchcock's decision to cast star Charles Lawton came the condition of a producer role resulting in ongoing and unwanted interference from the actor. Little did the director know, but another more impactful creation was waiting for him in the wings. In 1939, Hitchcock is lured to Hollywood by producer David O. Selznick under a seven-year contract. The following year, it is the gothic setting of Manderley in 1940s Rebecca, and the tale of one young bride being haunted by her predecessor which causes a storm with audiences and critics alike, and which would result in taking the director's career to the next level. Selznick originally tempted Hitchcock over to Hollywood with the promise of directing a film about the sinking of the Titanic, but when this project fell through, instead he tasked him with adapting to Moria's novel. Screenwriter and producer Joan Harrison, who had started as Hitchcock's secretary, co-wrote the screenplay for the film, as well as for Foreign Correspondent, which was made in the same year. An important figure in the director's work, Hitchcock would often discuss details of his pictures with her, seeking her much-valued input and advice. In Rebecca, we are brought right into the perspective of the second Mrs. De Winter, an approach which the director confirmed was intentional stating that he treated everything from the girl's point of view an approach he would adopt time and time again and which i would suggest can form part of a strong argument for reading his films as possessing feminist qualities writing in her phenomenal book the women who knew too much which applies theories of psychoanalysis mass culture a broad range of film and feminist criticism. Professor Tanya Medleski describes Rebecca as the story of a woman's maturation, a woman who must come to terms with a powerful father figure and assorted mother substitutions. When asked if he was satisfied with Rebecca, Hitchcock said, it's not a Hitchcock picture. A gothic fairy tale, which the director told Truffaut was akin to Cinderella and the One Ugly Sister. Rebecca was a huge success and won an Oscar for Best Picture. However, this success may not have been felt so keenly by Hitchcock himself. When Truffaut asked him how it felt receiving his first and only award, the director wryly responded, I've never had an Oscar. As was customary, the award had been given to producer David O. Selznick. He did not acknowledge Hitchcock in his acceptance speech. Hitchcock and Selznick's relationship continued to be a rocky and tumultuous one, with the pair clashing on a regular basis. But this period was also interspersed with a screwball comedy in the form of Mr. and Mrs. Smith and the thriller Suspicion. The latter marked Cary Grant's first outing with the director. He would go on to work with Hitchcock several times again. It was also Hitchcock's first time as both director and producer, which resulted in Joan Fontaine taking home a Best Actress Academy Award. During this time, Hitchcock sadly suffers two bereavements, losing his mother in September 1942 to illness aged 79, and his older brother, William, to an overdose aged just 52, only four months later. Hitchcock remained closely guarded about his personal life throughout his career, but he had remarked upon how these losses made him reconsider how he could better look after his own health, which he admitted he had been neglecting. In 1943, while on loan from Selznick, Hitchcock releases The Dark and Brooding Shadow of a Doubt, a film that, through its themes of death and family relationships, acts as an unintentional and yet poignant reflection of his own life at the time. Filmmaker Peter Badanovich calls it really the first American Hitchcock. It was set in America as opposed to Rebecca or Suspicion. Taking place in a traditional small American town, focusing on an all-American family, the Newtons, an innocent life is turned upside down after the arrival of the enigmatic figure of Uncle Charlie. The film is told through the eyes of the Newtons' eldest daughter, also named Charlie, who is frustrated at the lack of excitement and adventure in her life. While initially welcomed with open arms into the otherwise routine world, Uncle Charlie soon begins to take over the household, leading his niece to make a shocking discovery about his past that transforms her admiration into fear. Standing in contrast to the glamorous stars and opulent settings of both Rebecca and Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt is no Hollywood fairy tale. It is based firmly in the real world, and with its small town characters, feels grounded, and its events disturbingly plausible. In Uncle Charlie, Hitchcock creates a character study of the dark and depraved side of humanity. Film critic Robin Wood called him one of the supreme embodiments of the key Hitchcock figure, ambiguous devil and lost soul. Hitchcock has gone on record as stating that Shadow of a Doubt was his favourite film, as his daughter Patricia has commented in the documentary of the making of the film. This was my father's favourite movie, because he loved bringing menace to a small town. As the 40s continued, Hitchcock yearned to break free of Selznick, whose micromanaging ways he'd come to find suffocating, and after making Spellbound, Notorious, and the Parodying case together, they parted ways. In 1948, in his first film after the Selznick years, Hitchcock put his experimental edges to work in Rope, his first colour film, an adaptation of a 1929 stage play by Patrick Hamilton. Filmed in a series of long and unbroken takes, in a method highly innovative for the 40s, Rope is a pressure cooker of a drama that unfolds in real time and is a favourite of mine. Jimmy Stewart, another famous and long-time collaborator, makes his first appearance in the Hitchcock canon. For someone who had previously, and come to be known, for relying heavily upon editing, the choice to, in essence, remove any editing was a bold and daring one for Hitchcock. Full use of colour is made throughout the cyclorama backdrop, which changes from light to dark to reflect the mood. Despite being much loved by film fans today, Rope did not perform as well as expected at the box office. As the 50s approached, the director continued to remain prolific, with an adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's Strangers on a Train, followed by two remarkable works in 1954, starring the captivating and demure Grace Kelly, in Dial M for Murder and Fan Favourite, the subject of many a scholarly paper and academic discussion, Rear Window One of Hitchcock's most studied and discussed films, Rear Window, based on the short story by Cornell Woolwich, is part thriller, part romance. Set in a Greenwich Village courtyard, which is watched over obsessively by a bored and incapacitated Jeff, whose leg is in a plaster cast, not only is it a treatise on voyeurism, privacy, scopophilia and projection, but a meditation on cinema itself, with Jeff in the position of the spectator. One night, whilst gazing out at the shadows of his open window, Jeff sees suspicious activity from one of his neighbours, leading him to believe a murder has taken place. While Jeff is low maintenance and ordinarily lives a life on the move, often in extreme conditions as a photographer, is in a relationship with Lisa Fremont, who works in the world of fashion, preferring the finer things in life, such as couture dresses and lobster dinners. The film opens with them in conflict. A physical struggle may be happening across the courtyard, but on the opposite side of the window, within Jeff's apartment, an emotional tryst is taking place. Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly dazzle on screen, With the part of Lisa Fremont being written specifically for Kelly, which is no doubt why it seems so perfect for her. In his book, Hitchcock's Films Revisited, a collection of critical essays on the director's work, Robin Wood calls the film, Hitchcock's most uncompromising attempt to imprison us, not only within a limited space, but within a single consciousness. Most certainly, We are caught in Jeff's gaze throughout, or, as Firmikulik of Cynophilia and Beyond puts it, Jeff's eyes become our eyes and whose fears, doubts and anxiety and curiosity instantly become our own. This prompts us to explore both the pleasure and the morality of the art of looking, whilst also allowing us, as spectators, to critique Jeff's obsessiveness as the film goes on, whereas he himself, Is never conscious of this. Hitchcock commented upon how the film gave him the possibility of doing a purely cinematic film. He also laid out his cinematic technique in fascinating detail. In other words, he said, you had the immobile man, one piece of film he looks, second piece of film is what he sees. And then, his reaction. This was the cinematic motif through the film, representing the purest expression of cinematic idea. When asked about whether or not we should condemn Jeff, Hitchcock told Ruffaut, Sure, he's a peeping Tom, but aren't we all? Looking back on his picture, Hitchcock seemed proud of this work. I must have really been creative during that period. The batteries were well charged, he observed. Often considered to be the director's first real masterpiece, it enjoyed tremendous success and is ranked amongst Hitchcock's best works to this day. In 1955, Grace Kelly completes her last partnership with Hitchcock in To Catch a Thief a lavish feast for the eyes about a wealthy socialite and a convicted burglar who may or may not be committing his crimes again under the name of the Cat. In that same year, Hitchcock moves from cinemas to living rooms, as the series Alfred Hitchcock Presents airs from 1955 for the next seven years. No other director of his fame was appearing on television each week, And not only did this allow him to be Hitchcock the showman, as well as Hitchcock the artist, but it gave people a chance to get to know him. The present series consists of short tales of suspense, often involving a surprise twist, and are famously precluded by its recognisable title sequence. This features Hitchcock's silhouette, which is accompanied by a composition no doubt purposely chosen for its apt title, the now, thanks to Hitchcock, instantly recognisable Funeral March of Marionette. The episodes, which are all a variation on the thriller and mystery genre, are introduced by the director, with a mix of dry and self-deprecating humour that would become part of the Hitchcock brand. For another three years after 1962, it is renamed as the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Throughout its run under both titles, Hitchcock would come to direct a total of 18 episodes. After another dabble in the comedic, with the much underdiscussed The Trouble with Harry, which saw the first of many collaborations with composer Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock tried his hand again at his only remake of his work, in the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. As we come to the end of the decade, this is where many, and I myself, would argue that Hitchcock's genius reaches its undeniable peak. Within the next six years, Hitchcock will deliver a series of masterpieces, beginning in 1958 with Vertigo. Director and longtime Hitchcock fan, Martin Scorsese, explains his history with Vertigo, which he first saw with friends, remembering. We responded to the film very strongly. I didn't know why. Couldn't really tell why. Couldn't tell what was happening. This honest and succinct recollection of feeling a pull into a world he doesn't quite understand, but slowly becomes more and more entranced by over time describes not only protagonist Scotty's experience in the film, but my own relationship with it so precisely that it made me shiver slightly when I first heard these words. Often spoken of as the Mount Olympus of Hitchcock's career, Vertigo is also held up as one of the finest works of cinema to have ever been created. In the collection of essays, Haunted by Vertigo, Hitchcock's masterpiece Then and Now, Sidney Gottlieb notes how, for many of us, we live in a vertigo world, spellbound by a masterful film that accurately and memorably portrays some of the defining elements of modern life. Romantic exhalation and anxiety, the attractiveness and elusiveness of love, and the interpenetration of life and death in our psyche. I certainly consider myself to be amongst those living In a vertigo world. A meditation on obsession and illusion. The film is set amongst the cultural landmarks of San Francisco, told through the eyes of Scotty, a retired detective hired by an old friend to follow his wife, who he believes is being haunted by an aristocratic relative. Hitchcock takes us on an endlessly captivating journey of twists and turns over the course of the film as the truth is masterfully unwound in tandem with the emotional attachments and jeopardy of the characters, who we watch develop both in intensity and in unwitting opposition to one another. Vertigo is less of a film, and more of a waking dream come nightmare, told through a series of moving images. As Scorsese himself recognised, the plot is merely A line that you can hang things on, and the things that he hangs on, they're all aspects of cinema poetry. The film also contains the ingenious reverse zoom dolly shot which so accurately conveys the sensation of experiencing vertigo. Vertigo's own story as a work of cinema is as enigmatic and strange as the film itself with its initial failure slowly making way for its rise to a Panthonian-like status among critics, students, and cinema-goers alike. It is also regarded as Hitchcock's most personal work, or, to put it more specifically, as a film that encapsulates his innermost self. Vertigo deals in many themes and motifs, one of which is Spirals. Perhaps the most fitting way to describe the film is to say it is kaleidoscopic, in that it is never one finite thing, but it is always changing. A fusion of the beautifully hypnotic and the unexplainably disturbing. Like its spirals and the roads which Scotty navigates whilst watching Madeline, Bertigo itself is an intoxicating exploration of the unobtainable and the unspoken, as well as a rumination on the theme of construction and resurrection. Hitchcock continued his spectacular and unparalleled run with what is quite possibly his most entertaining picture in North by Northwest, a sprawling and energetic tale of the wrong man, culminating on Mount Rushmore. In 1960, however, he elected to change tact. Gone was the Technicolor epic romance, making way for a black and white tale steeped in realism and which spoke to the emerging fears of a post-1950s America. Despite the huge success of North by Northwest, Psycho represented a significant risk for Hitchcock as it was made through his own production company, Shamley Productions, after its content was deemed unsuitable by Paramount Pictures. Based on Robert Block's novel of the same name, Hitchcock leans into horror territory in a way we have never seen before. Psycho is an interior psychological study of human behaviour and the fragility of human life. The story opens with Marion Crane, an office worker who, uncharacteristically, steals $40,000 from her employer. She leaves town and arrives at the Bates Motel, where she meets Norman, the polite and yet nervous and socially awkward proprietor. But all is not what it seems, as a female figure sits in the window of the nearby Bates' home, and events take a turn for the worst. Among Psycho's countless highlights are the killing off of the assumed heroine, working girl Marion Crane, halfway into the film, followed by the switch in character point of view from Marion to Norman, who is one of Hitchcock's most fascinating protagonists? antagonists, you decide. And of course, finally, the famous shower sequence, filmed in 78 shots and 58 cuts, shot in seven days, involving 70 setups for just 45 seconds of what is quite possibly the most beautiful and arresting piece of film editing to ever exist. Psycho is at once decades ahead of its time whilst also feeling like a return to Hitchcock fundamentals, through the multiple sustained periods of silence, a heart back to the director's commitment to what he calls pure cinema. Film critic David Sterrett refers to the clean-up scene post-death of Marion as one such case in point, calling it silent storytelling. Hitchcock told Drafaut, My main satisfaction is that film did something to an audience. It was pure film that stirred an audience. The picture belongs to us, you and I more than any picture I've made. I know one thing, the use of film in constructing this story caused audiences all over the world to react and become emotional. He certainly wasn't wrong. In 1961, Hitchcock's eye was caught by an advert for a diet drink featuring Tippy Hedren, which resulted in the hitherto unknown actress being cast in two of his films, The Birds, signifying Hitchcock's third return to a work of Daphne du Maurier, and what is often purported to be his last great film, Marnie, a close second favourite of mine, and which is, in my opinion at least, a maligned masterpiece, that is ripe for reassessment. The director never reaches the same level of success again after this period in the 50s and 60s, and in 1972 returns to London, which becomes the setting for what is probably his most well-known work of his final years, Frenzy, before his long and illustrious career comes to an end. In April 1980, after suffering with his health for some time, Alfred Hitchcock dies from liver failure. He is 80 years old. So now we've taken a broad look at Hitchcock's life and Korea. This leads us to the important question of what, why and who is Hitchcock? An examination into Hitchcock's work cannot be conducted without considering the man himself and why his work continues to fascinate and beguile. If we lay out a timeline of Hitchcock's career, we see that he has created films across not just his own history, but the history of cinema. His work has occurred across the silent era. He's made films both in the black and white era and in colour, and has work in 3D. With his series Alfred Hitchcock Presents, he breaks through out of the world of the silver screen to enter into the homes of everyday families extending his reach far beyond that of the cinema. What's more, despite being cited as the master of suspense, the director in many ways defies categorization when it comes to genre. By turn, his films can be referred to as romances, thrillers, horrors and comedies. The question then, of what is Hitchcock, seems to be something that is both instantly recognisable and conversely, impossible to pin down. With his background in design and promotion Hitchcock knew and understood the importance of building his own brand. He in essence marketed himself and this made him a pioneer. Hitchcock made the art and Hitchcock was the art but as we will explore later in the series Although he had a reputation for being a Svengali type character, what we know as Hitchcock could simply not have been created by one man alone. Hitchcock, the universe, is the result of a well-oiled and finely-tuned machine, comprising of editors, composers, writers, designers, and countless more. Above all else, Hitchcock seems to have been a man of opposites, of complexities and contradictions he embraced high and low-brow culture through his work he was in favor of traditionalism but also showed a great deal of experimentalism as well as adhering to the rules of the golden age of hollywood he toyed with more non-naturalistic cinematic techniques his films are argued by some to be highly feminist but it also becomes challenging to ignore or separate this from accounts and accusations concerning the nature of his character. He's perhaps most famously known for, and immediately identifiable, in his roughly sketched silhouette, which became a trademark or shorthand for his image through his Alfred Hitchcock Percent series. But can we ever really know Alfred Hitchcock? Such a simple choice, then, as a silhouette, seems perfect for a man and his work that feels permanently familiar and, by contrast, deeply unknowable. Finally, then, what of my own personal journey with Hitchcock? It saddens me to confess that I have no one clear vivid memory to boast of when it comes to Hitchcock's films and my first experience. But Hitchcock has been such an important part of my life as a cinema lover and as a writer. The earliest I can trace back to definitively is around aged 18. I know I was in my parents' back room. I know I was watching Psycho on a weekday afternoon, and that no disruption, no matter how loud, could break the spell I was under. And I know I made sandwiches and milk. To accompany the experience. In picking these refreshments, specifically because they were within the film, I've also since deduced that this could not have been my first viewing. I remember my heartbeat though, thudding throughout with anticipation, with apprehension and a desperate wish for Marion to survive. But mostly it thumped with sheer delight. Delight at what I was sensing, feeling Seeing, I felt inside of a world, inside the film, inside the minds of the characters, and it was a thrill like I had never felt before. Reflecting on this time now, I've come to believe that this was really the beginning of my obsession with Hitchcock's films, and I've strong memories from this moment on of collecting as many of his works as I could. In particular, I remember being overjoyed at coming across a VHS copy of Marnie in a charity shop for a mere £1.99. It's now being played so much that it jumps and becomes a wash with psycho-like white stripes running across the screen. But this doesn't prevent me from taking it down from my shelf and trying to play it from time to time. As I watched my way through the birds, rear window, north by northwest, and of course that most towering of achievements there to go i found myself getting pulled deeper and deeper in sometimes i just wanted to be in the world of hitchcock i still do so great is its attraction the colours the costumes the mise-en-scène the score everything working in perfect harmony like pure magic or should that be pure cinema before my very eyes. Memory, I've come to realise, can be quite unreliable, and there's every chance that I had some other formative experience with Hitchcock. However, in the context of Hitchcock's work, the disordered collection of images, scores, places, fears, and desires that exist inside of me feel undeniably Hitchcockian, and perhaps represent the most fitting way I can hope to recollect my early relationship with his work. In these films, I've always recognised something familiar and something unknowable, both which simultaneously attract and repel me. As someone who predominantly writes and creates in the world of horror, I've always said that the appeal of the genre for me is that alchemy of excitement and danger, ingredients I know I have identified in Hitchcock. Star of Psycho Anthony Perkins once said, Hitchcock makes us enjoy fear, an observation I couldn't agree more with, and which speaks to me deeply, not only in Hitchcock's work, but as to one of the reasons why I love horror so much. It's no surprise to me looking back that I developed a passion for Hitchcock at pretty much the same time that I found horror. Two relationships our will nurture forevermore. In Hitchcock's works, I could stray into my nightmares, but still be surrounded by my dreams at the same time. The push-pull of relationships in Notorious and Real Window fascinated me, while the disconnect and outsider-like status of the second Mrs. De Winter in Rebecca, of Scotty in Vertigo, and Melanie Daniels in The Birds, spoke to a young woman who was not long out of her teenage years, who had always felt somewhat on the fringes. It was not all dark and disturbing though, as I found that Hitchcock films also contained a wonderful humour, whether it's in the bantering exchanges between Stella and Jeff in Rear Window, or in a delectable deviousness of Brandon in Rope. Hitchcock's films offered an ever-spinning and ever-changing wheel that upon each turn took me to a different place, a different mood, and to a different part of myself. In Hitchcock I saw things I recognised and understood but caught in between this I also saw things that were strange, unfathomable and that brought out an irrepressible urge for me to uncover the hidden. What was Hitchcock's work saying about the world around me and what was it teaching me about myself? As a writer in the horror community I spent some years honing my craft and enveloping myself in a disciplined routine all the while i could hear the whispering call in the back of my mind the desire to write about hitchcock the time to face my fear came in my own mount rushmore moment a few years ago my pocketbook mums and sons began with psycho i'd wanted to write about norman's relationship with his mother and what started as one long-form think piece eventually became an examination of mothers and their sons across three stages of life in three films as i looked at childhood in the babadook teenagers in hereditary and finally adulthood in psycho i sat with the finished work for some time almost two years later i held my first feature-length work in my hands the pocketbook did better than I could have imagined, and left me feeling bolstered. Perhaps it was time to get braver, to throw caution to the wind, and allow the fears to exist, but not to dominate. While all this was happening, in April 2021, I was contacted by Tim Coleman of Moving Pictures Film Club. Tim had become aware of my work and asked if I would be interested in contributing to his site. I pitched him five ideas, for longer longer-running series and one-off pieces. All of them focused on Hitchcock. One of them, which Tim happened to like best, was called The Lady Never Vanishes, and described itself as being an examination into the female characters of Hitchcock's films, seeking to analyse and celebrate the women across his works through a female perspective. Soon, this would become the less nonsensical and more appropriately descriptive title of Hitchcock's Women, belonging to what represents my proudest and most personally fulfilling work to date. Before Hitchcock's Women, I knew I had a fascination and a mysterious connection with his films. But now, after covering 12 films looking purely through the female perspective as a female, my obsession has never felt stronger as my curiosity continues to soar. The world of criticism and discussion on Hitchcock is saturated by male voices, and in establishing my series it finally felt that within the works of my favourite director, I have found my focus. The place where I could share my perspective ...whilst exploring one of my greatest passions... ...without Hitchcock's women... ...this podcast would not exist... ...and here we are... ...this brings us right up to the present date... ...I arrive at Talking Hitchcock... ...a podcast idea that came to mind when I realised... ...that while thinking and reflecting on Hitchcock's films... ...was a pastime that filled me with great joy... ...it was almost half complete if I was unable to take my theories, questions, and responses, and share them in dialogue with others. Is Marnie a feminist film? Why is Madeline nowhere to be seen when Scotty visits the McKittrick Hotel in Vertigo? Is schoolmaster of rope, Rupert Cadell, responsible for the heinous crimes committed by his students, Brandon and Philip? Hungry for long and considered conversations around such questions and more, I could think of no better medium to do this in than in a podcast. I guess in a humble and rather indirect way, I'm admitting that this podcast is basically a means of me being able to talk about Hitchcock with others. I'm hoping that in this process, as much as I am enjoying myself, you will not only enjoy the discussions, but get involved too. This is also a good time to acknowledge that I consider this podcast to be a journey both for listeners and for myself and as such I also want to acknowledge that I consider myself a student of Hitchcock as someone who is constantly learning from the films from myself from others from the world around me and this is an ongoing process that as far as I'm concerned will never be finished we all interpret and respond to art in as unique a way as the art itself happens to be. And in this respect, I'm very aware that my perspective on Hitchcock is nothing but a speck of dust in a universe of thought, criticism, and personal opinion. My aim in sharing this is to have the opportunity to engage with others, to dissect, to discuss, to reevaluate and to have as much fun as possible. Quite plainly, let's talk Hitchcock. It's time to leave the screening room, but don't fret. You can find Talking Hitchcock on Twitter at Hitch underscore pod and Instagram at Talking So, if you like what you hear, please consider supporting the podcast by giving us a follow. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can reach us on talkinghitchpod at gmail.com. We're just getting started. So if you enjoyed this, please tell a friend and help to spread the word. I've been your host, Rebecca, and you can find me in my work, including my series of essays on Hitchcock's Women with Moving Pictures Film Club on Twitter and Instagram at Pendle Pumpkin. Thank you so much for being here on my first episode. I look forward to seeing you back in the screening room soon. But until next time, stay curious and keep talking Hitchcock.